Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. Experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us each week at this time as we delve into science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I am your host, Gene Turnbow, and with me is my co-host, Susan Fox. Or you can call me Science Girl. And our guest today is none other than the author of the new novel, Exo, the latest novel in the Jumper series, Mr. Stephen Gould. Welcome to the show. I am so happy to be here. And this time we actually have operating equipment, which is novel. Woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> Not to detract from your novel. <laughs> so, so the books in the series are Jumper, Reflux, Impulse, and now Exo. Yes, and, and the, sort of a sideways book as well, but that's related to the Jumper Griffin's story. Right. So, um, you wrote the first one in 1996. Two. 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 1992. Yes. Well, 1990, really, <laughs> if you want to get into it. It was sold in 1991 and then published in 1992. There's a lead time in those. Yeah. So, it must be a pretty amazing feeling to have your very first published novel turned into a motion picture. That's a great feeling. It is, no doubt about it. Also, just the fact that um, most people, especially back before ebooks, your book tended to go out, come out, co- come out, go to the bookstore, stay in the bookstore around six to eight weeks, and unless it really was taking off, it went away and dropped out of print within a year or two. And that book's been in print ever since. That's exciting. That's really good. Well, a lot of people liked that book, apparently. Sounds like a ringing endorsement. So if, mm-hmm. you have, if you have tweens or teens, you have Jumper in the house, I expect. You had been well, right. It's, it's one of those books, I'm, I mean, uh, it actually is right on the border between um, YA and adult my target has always been the Heinlein juveniles, which were readable by both with pleasure. Mm-hmm. And I, I can definitely see, uh, I can definitely see the echoes of that in when I'm when I was reading the first half of EXO, which unfortunately is about as far as I got before we had to do the interview. Susan, however, the speed reader has managed to. <laughs> chow down the entire book in a matter of about a day. I loved it, though. Where was this when I was 13? Man! I was reading Heinlein Juveniles, obviously. But Half spacesuit will travel, except with teleportation. Except with, like, real spacesuits. 
<laughs> we knew something about spacesuits and living on, in, you know, in a space station by the time this was written. Yeah, or, amazingly, or though, uh, Heinlein's How Spacesuit Will Travel, it all was the pretty good. technical uh, stuff about the spacesuit it, is great. They didn't have, at the time, um, they weren't contemplating doing rebreathers uh, to absorb carbon dioxide to make your oxygen go longer. But the suit, as it would was uh, illustrated in How Space It Will Travel, would have worked just fine. I think so. What, no, I just have to wonder what his inspiration was. Did he work with diver suits in the Navy? or? or? I don't think so, but uh, he was a... Um, you know, he actually knew people like uh, Willie Lay, oh, who, uh, who was a very early astronautic, you know, uh, person that are experimenting with high altitude uh, suits even back then um, for aircraft. And so there were pressure suits and using the technology for that and extrapolating out. For instance, in the, the spacesuit as illustrated in uh, How Space It Will Travel, they just exhausted the air. You breathed in, you breathed out, and it went out of the spacesuit. But the important thing about that is it took heat with you. They didn't have any sort of... Um, in that suit, there was no cooling layer like there is in our current astronaut spacesuits. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Kip certainly had some discomfort and... and uh, uh, got the little girl's name. Um, Scent. Pee-wee. Pee-wee. Oh, Pee-wee. Pee-wee from Space Oh, right, right. She was in less, even more discomfort because she had just a tourist suit. The idea of there being tourist suits, you know they cheap out. (laughs) Yep. So um, I love the fact that, uh, uh, first of all, that the the protagonist in EXO is uh, an 18-year-old girl. 17. 17 year old girl. And, um, and that yeah. she's. They guessed her at 22 with, and she holds up five fingers, you know? <laughs> uh, fascinated with space travel and has the ability to do something directly about it. Unlike every other Unlike teenager. every other teenage girl. <laughs> yeah, she has this <laughs> who, who special. Saw ter- gift. You know, Sally Ride, you know? Right. Absolutely. So, um, there's several things going on in the book, uh, as it reacts to me personally. Um, Jumper, the first book, is a book about a, a kid dealing with a particularly, uh, you know, abusive parent, uh, not a very happy home life. And um, the book is a massive metaphor for escape. So teleportation is a metaphor for escape in the first book. But um, so every time the next book was 10 years later, I'm married, I am happily married, um, mm. and arguing with my wife about whether or not to have kids. And in that second book, Reflex, that's happening there. And then in this third book, uh, Impulse, since starts out that book at, at age 15, um, 15 going on 16. And she, um, and my, you know, I have two teenage daughters. Uh-huh. Well, right now my daughters are actually both in college, so great. Uh, so again, they all sort <laughs> of sell more things books. that are going on in my life. But going back to the space travel stuff, in it really goes back to sitting in a Honolulu kitchen in 19, 
69 and watching Neil Armstrong step down on the moon uh, on a four-inch mm. Sony TV. I, I remember seeing that myself uh, at the time. And uh, I was watching it on my... On the television in my father's living room, and uh, it didn't matter if you didn't have a color TV. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's all blacks and whites anyway. Mm-hmm. But it, but uh, the whole world stopped on that day. I, I think I remember uh, reading that while the lunar landing uh, was being televised, that in New York, not a single hubcap was stolen <laughs> <laughs> during the time that the the uh, lunar the the landing was being televised. What a statistic! Yeah, ten minutes later, all I, I bet the water levels dropped while everyone whipped <laughs> off to the bathroom. So, um, uh, how long had you been working on the uh, uh, the mythos of the world for this for uh, the Jumper series before you before you wrote the first one? Well, I would say that uh, this book is, you know, this is an accidental series, meaning um, I know, you know, George Martin's a good friend of mine, and here's a guy who, he did start out with characters, but he's got this massive universe plotted out and planned and everything, and they just published this huge book. He's got uh, multiple universes worked out. I mean, look at the Joker's Wild books, too. Um, That's a whole, oh, absolutely! But the, the main—I mean—that is a multi-person yeah, thing yeah. Mm-hmm. on the Joker's on the uh, wild cards stuff. But the main point is, I literally went from book to book uh, until um, even after Impulse, I wasn't clear yet whether there would be a uh, another book or not. Well, yes, I was at that point. Certainly not after Reflex, certainly not after Jumper. Um, I wasn't, at that point I was going, well, what would be the next? At that point I was going, okay, we're done. So it's not like I uh, was doing a organized mythos and organized things. On the other hand, one of the things I've always held true to is all of the principles that happen in the book uh, that teleportation can do are are laid out in the very first book. Mm-hmm. Um, the implications, uh, the physical implications, the uh, the fact that they're matching frames of reference uh, rather than it's not just uh, teleportation, is it? But it's manipulation of mass direction, which means velocity. Well, I think frames <laughs> of reference really covers it. Yeah. So uh-huh. your you have two different frames of reference that you're opening a hole between. So in the standard, relatively simple teleport from, say, the Yukon, where their cabin is, down to uh, Texas, um, there's a hole between one spot on the Earth and the other. But even that's not completely simple, since going from that latitude to the latitude in Texas, you're changing your velocity that oh, yes. the Earth spins around mm-hmm. by a couple of hundred kilometers an hour. There's so, the Earth's um, rotation. There's right. the Earth's revolution. There's yeah. You know. So you're actually, you know, taking two frames of reference that are moving at different speeds. So in order and, to do a teleportation without killing yourself, you have to you have to be able to match your uh, your current velocity. Uh, 
you know, and in and the the vector of that velocity to whatever is appropriate to the target environment, or you're you're dead. Happily, right. this seems to be able to be accomplished by the jumpers without having to think too hard about it. Right. It's what then since that was a since you're clearly changing your velocity from one location to the other. Uh, Scent discovers in uh, the third book that she can pretty much jump in one place or to another place and come out with a different velocity than the place she's actually arrived at. I mean, I know you both haven't read Impulse, but when she first discovers this, she um, takes off vertically. She jumps in place. She has, opens a hole to right where she is, but with an upward velocity of around 200 miles an hour, Oof. which ends up blacking both her eyes, uh, ripping off most of her clothing, Oops. and uh, you yeah, know, really straining her, her mm-hmm. joints. Oh, <laughs> well, that would uh, do it. So uh, a interesting lesson. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> learning, learning the hard way. When a 15-year-old shows up with ripped clothes and black eyes. Mother's going to have something to say. Yes. Uh, (laughs) That is the next scene, but um, she actually comes down into her living room with full geisha kabuki makeup on. (laughs) Yeah, I suppose so. To to cover it. uh, And wearing a kimono. There we go. That's funny. That's funny. It doesn't take long for them to discover it though, and and to want to know who <coughs> this person who beat on their daughter was. I find her her voice very authentic, speaking as a a former teenage girl. <laughs> I mean, you have all the problems of of the plot and the people after you, and you know, doing all the things she does, and and boyfriend trouble. Yeah, boyfriend. <laughs> God, trouble. I had that. I still <coughs> had to manage everything else. Right. Right. I am uh, really uh, interested in the other plot going on in EXO, which is uh, the the family keeping themselves safe and this other character, Hunt, uh, very aptly named uh, the CIA mm-hmm. agent. Yeah, but he's actually not a antagonist. Well, we, but you don't know that at first. Oh, yeah. Not. When we meet him, he's not exactly a friendly no, no, you're right. Um, and there's, you know, this, uh, the people who are after them have been after them consistently since Reflex. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Reflex, in fact, there's one character in the book um, who. <laughs> we don't want spoilers. Yeah, really. We want yeah. to be careful how we phrase it. Yeah, I don't want to do spoilers, but uh, so, uh, yeah, so. Um, the, this sort of uh, multinational, you know, secret cabal, corporate, you know, mm-hmm. manipulators of governments and so on, um, has been around and and they really want to use. I mean, well, they make the mistake initially of uh, of trying to um, back in reflex of mm-hmm. trying to condition and. Uh, well, first capturing, then conditioning Davy to try and use him as a, as their tool, and that doesn't work out 
quite so well for a couple of reasons. Hmm. Including the big reason is is Millie. Um, the first book is definitely Davy's story, but the second book is pretty much split evenly between him and mm-hmm. his wife. And then, of course, the third book has them, but is uh, is now, their daughter. Now, the story. mother is not a relative. How did she learn to jump? Or is that the whole book? <laughs> they speculate. I mean, they they speculate um, in they speculate in reflex. They speculate in impulse. Effectively, it turns out, or it seems to me, that this is about that if someone is being jumped hundreds or thousands of times by someone who can do it, they're experiencing the phenomenon over and over and over. Mm -hmm. And there's a perceptual thing that happens that uh, at some point allows them under the right impetus, the right motivation, mm-hmm. um, to jump themselves mm. or die. So um, in the case of Millie, she's literally trying to climb down out of their cliff house when a rope breaks and she starts plummeting to her death. In the case of Scent, the beginning of Impulse, she is snowboarding without permission mm-hmm. uh, and triggers an avalanche. And uh, it's about to bury her when she ends up in her own bedroom with around nine cubic yards of snow. Ah, yes, <laughs> that that's alluded to in uh, in EXO. Uh, the first time she jumps back, she's brought back enough snow to really mess up the carpet, necessitating yep. its replacement. <laughs> um, I can just imagine how much trouble I'd have been in. <laughs> so how did uh, how did the Transition happened from from book to motion picture for Jumper. Um, there were several. Um, there actually, it was actually optioned around four times mm-hmm. by different people over the years. But um, eventually, my agent at the time, Ralph Echenanza, um started a company in Hollywood called called Created by uh, with a another an agent who represented books to Hollywood. And instead of just going around and saying, this is a good book, you should make it into a movie, they started packaging things. Mm -hmm. They would go to a hot, upcoming writer-director, and they would say, would you be interested in being attached to this project? And in my case, what they did is they got together Dave Goyer, who did, um, among other things, he wrote the scripts for all the Blade movies, and he wrote... Mm -hmm. The three scripts for the for the Nolan Batman movies. I didn't. I, I didn't know you knew David Goyer. That's well. I, I only, I've only met him once uh, myself. But this was them, the the company created by doing this, and then uh-huh. they sold the package of Goyer and the and the book to New Regency, mm-hmm. and uh, then Goyer had to drop out because of one of the Batman projects mm-hmm. at that time, and. Uh, Doug Lyman came on board at that point. One of many changes that happened. And yet, uh, it did finally get done. Uh, it's, um, uh, fans often ask, uh, are you, are you happy with what they did to your book? 
you know, have, are you able to live with what they did to your book? And what would you, how would you respond to a question like that with respect to the movie Jumper and the book Jumper? Well, as, you know, as James M. Cain said about uh, many of his Hollywood adaptations, uh, they haven't done anything to my book. My book is still there on the shelf. Uh, the main <laughs> thing about having a movie made, especially a large budget, relatively mm-hmm. large budget film, is the amount of advertising is compared to what they advertise, what book advertising, movie advertising is you know, like a, the difference between a red dwarf and a supernova. Um, <laughs> yes. It's, it's um, Even there a was movie an you ad barely see <laughs> in the middle of the Super Bowl for that movie. Oh, um, wow. So it's that must not, have been something. It's not a um, um, the amount of money they spend on that, and and your book gets to tag along. Um, <laughs> uh huh. You know, even if you never got another penny for the movie, which tends to be the case for writers, mm-hmm. a novelist, most of the money from a movie is up front. It's in the and option. Then, and then it's yeah. in increased sales mm-hmm. uh, on your own books. Did you get a big bump? Uh, yes, yes. A book. So for a brief one-week period there in 19, 2008, a, a 16-year-old book was on the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. That is awesome. And it did very well, too. It did... Uh, the movie? Uh, yeah, the movie. Yeah, the movie yeah. did two hundred twenty-three million worldwide, and uh, it, around eighty-six million that's, US. That's really, really good. It's uh, it's good names in it. Twenty-three point seven million on its first weekend. Yeah, and uh, yeah, it did okay. Uh, the um, it had um, how to put it. Uh, so we had. Um, they made some. Obviously, they they they're t- they're telling their own story in that thing. They had some definite changes. They went from one jumper to a long history of mini jumpers. They went from um, nobody knowing about teleport teleporters to this this secret organization that does nothing but hunt down and kill uh, teleporters. Yikes! Um, mm-hmm. um, of which they make. His mom, instead of uh, the victim of a terrorist attack, an actual member of of these uh, of this organization. Wow, that's a bit of a change. It yeah. is. There's a lot of changes, and as uh, I alluded to, uh, the um, I think they could have done a better job of telling their story. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things. You do get, if you watch, if you get the DVD and watch all the deleted scenes, you get a whole another layer of um, character development um, rather than just more action, action, action. And do you think they cut it for pacing or? I think the studio went, this is, this movie is for 25 year old males. And it needs to be under ninety minutes. Oh. Yeah, For, like like they can't watch a two-hour movie like Star Wars. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, no, I think oh, um, Hollywood is full of has a long history of under 
estimating the intelligence of audiences or the, you know, even or, or the, I, someone put it. Well, actually, Doug Lyman put it like this. I was I had a dinner with him around two weeks ago hmm. um, because we happened to be out uh, on the same in the same part of. Uh, um, we were both on. I was on Martha's Vineyard teaching at Viable Paradise, the genre workshop, mm. and he was up for his um, and in his three hundred year old farmhouse for uh, Columbus Day weekend. Just a oh nice vacation, and and uh, he had Laura and I over. But uh, he said um, things in Hollywood happen not because of passion, but because of fear. That people are afraid certain things are going to happen and they cut back, they push forward, they, um, they do stuff that's interesting. For instance, there were two relatively unknown actors playing Davy and Millie mm-hmm. at the beginning of that thing. And then suddenly Samuel Jackson was attached to the project. And at that point, um, I really feel that the, Rather than looking at those those um, actors and saying, "Oh, they're just not good enough," they went, "Oh, we've got that big name. We have to get correspondingly bigger names." To um, yeah, otherwise, because, otherwise, it looks like we stuck in a big name to make money. You know, and well, they and did. Well, <laughs> and they did. <laughs> but, they did, and, but they also have to spend more money. Mm-hmm. Right? It's interesting. Um, but a on bum deal hand, for they those were kids to that spend they... more money. Once they had the other big name, it's a mm-hmm. weird kind of balance. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of a cycle, you know, because the the big name doesn't want to be in a movie with with uh, with unknowns because well, it, it detracts it, it detracts from movie. his reputation. They want it to be a successful movie. Um, oh yeah. Currently, right now, um, I believe maybe Harrison Ford is the box office winner. Mm-hmm. If you look at total career movies and the total amount of money made by those movies, mm-hmm. but um, Samuel Jackson is number two. Wow! <laughs> and I think he wanted to get into this last, uh, just briefly. He wanted to get into this. Um, he was willing to do like a cameo on the last uh, Indiana Jones movie, um, just so he would also be in that, and his mm-hmm. uh, his career stats would go up. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So um you can say the same about a number of the Lord of the Rings actors who really had no business being in the Hobbit. <laughs> I think they weren't in the book. I don't think that's uh, was their decision. Um it, it was to I some extent. I know that decision. I think it mm, I don't know. I remember hearing that Vigo Mortensen turned it down because he knew he didn't had no business in that story. Okay. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, so, I didn't but it know wasn't that. a case of them some days you know, lobbying to be included as much as well maybe they wanted so. to bring it all back again if you're just tuning in uh, you're listening to krypton radio it's the event horizon and we're talking to science fiction writer stephen gould his latest book is exo um the uh are you working on a sequel to this one already well, currently or? i'm working on another hollywood project that um um i spent uh since last year, I was working with um, 
well, last year I spent five months in a room with uh, four screenwriters, a writer's assistant, and James Cameron. Mm. And we're working mm-hmm. on the next three Avatar films, and uh, the and I'm doing four books. Um, my goodness! Oh my goodness! Do you have input in the films, or are you the novelizer? I um, we were we did the we plotted out the next three movies, you know, which was mainly not mainly but substantially stuff that uh, Jim had already created. Mm-hmm. I mean, he downloaded over a thousand notes the first week to us. Um, oh my gosh! Stuff. So, um, we, um, but um, I did have input. I was contributing uh, on the creation of plot elements mm-hmm. uh, and so on for the next three movies. But uh, at this point, then the screenwriters who are all writing with Jim. So, uh, first one is done by um, um, Josh Friedman mm-hmm. and uh, Jim. Uh, Josh Friedman was the showrunner on the Sarah Connor Chronicles, mm-hmm. as well as he wrote the Spielberg uh, War of the Worlds. Mm-hmm. So no, no stranger to genre. Right. And then, um, you know, he may be doing the second one. I, I think the first one may be um, Rick Jaffa and Amanda Silver. Oh, one one. These are all wonderful people. I, I just love them dearly. After spending five months with them, it's a good thing. <laughs> uh, but the uh, they did the uh, the next two. They did the last two. Um, uh, Planet of the Apes uh, movies. So, mm-hmm. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes and uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and she, you know, she's. They're both long term. Uh, Writers, I think the the project she did coming out of uh, USC master's program was uh, the hand that rocks the cradle. Mm-hmm. Oh, that was that was tense. That so was intense. Um, so then, um, and then the last one was uh, is uh, uh, Shane Salerno, great writer who um, who among other things uh, wrote something called The Savages, which is a um, not a, not a genre thing, but he also was one of the main screenwriters for Armageddon. Though I think we can blame the odd stuff in Armageddon on Michael Bay. Not, uh, yes. Not him, but... Um, All the NASA fans I know just roll their eyes at that picture. <laughs> and then, um, but he also did, he was the director, writer, and producer of this recent uh, documentary on Salinger, called Salinger. <laughs> And the massive book that went along with it, co-author of the magic massive book that went along with it. And he's doing the third. He'll be doing the third uh, book with Jim. What an third movie uh, with Jim. What an amazing place to be. It was for you. Very bizarre. What an amazing place to to find yourself in. And you started out writing short stories uh, in in the nineteen eighties. Right. My first story was sold in nineteen seventy nine, but it didn't come out. Until 1980, it was like the 50th anniversary of um, Astounding Analog, mm-hmm. where my first sale was. Oh, wow. And so um, so they had commissioned a whole bunch of stuff for that year especially. So the delay in my first story coming out was longer than it normally would have been. Yeah, because they were booked. They'd already right, booked all their Right, exactly. Space. They'd filled up a lot of the issues. But sti- but uh, 
starting from there and then ending up in the place you're in now. I mean, what a what a remarkable journey. Well, it's it goes up, it goes down, it goes mm-hmm. up, and it's not a it's not an, a a climb and a climb like right now. Um, <laughs> so where well, where are they at with the Avatar films? Well, um, are they shooting? Are they? They're hopefully about to shoot. They were they're working on you know getting the screenplays down to a reasonable length. Mm. Part of the problem is how much story there is, and you know how those mm-hmm. movies run long anyway. Right. Um, so the so that's an issue. Hopefully, they will make the projected um, dates, which would be you know one a year. Mm-hmm coming out starting in December of 2016. That is a very, very tight schedule for a film like, for, for films like that. Well, uh, four, 14 to 16 three months. together. Oh, I see. But then it's the post-production that's going to go sequential. Um, and you know how much that movie was post-production. It's so oh, sure. CGI. Well, uh, um, and a lot of it was, uh, the, the remarkable thing about the Avatar movie was uh, that uh, they lined up their shots and did them in real time uh, using sort of a virtual reality viewer, I've an been augmented in reality viewer. I've been in the, I was, you know, the room I was in for five months was across the hall from that, from the stage they're using now. Uh-huh. Uh, so, um, so, yeah, <laughs> I'm very familiar. <laughs> it, they call it performance capture, not because mm-hmm. it... Um, as opposed to motion capture, because in addition to, of course, all the little dots on the suits for capturing the physical motion, mm-hmm. there's a camera on a boom three inches in front of the face capturing every line of your expression, every movement of your eye. Um, as well as your voice. And that gets translated into the it. characters. Yeah. It's just, wow. It, it's, it's, uh, it was a technological achievement. And it was... Um, uh, interestingly, the the uh, next film to use something like that was the uh, was the Disney bomb Mars Needs Moms, and that it was a charming little film yes. that nobody saw. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the best the uh, the best film never seen. I mean, apart from Iron Giant, um, and <laughs> well, lots of people have seen Iron Giant, but the. Um, I think more than possibly Mar- Mar- Mars, Mars needs Mars, moms, but the uh, the thing that came right before Avatar that really made people nervous was the uh, Polar Express. Oh where, God, where, yes, where it got really creepy. Yeah, the, the, that just fell into the uncanny valley, didn't it? It they, should have been good. They, they had those the the stiff faces and the uh, right. and uh, the. When you have stiff faces and stiff hand poses, it looks like animated mannequins, and you're into the uncanny valley very fast. There was a point in the final <clears throat> rendering, so they'd filmed the entire film, as in they'd captured all the performances and they'd done all the photographic work, but there it was still a year before they got the first shot that would actually end up on the screen. Mm. And that was the, <clears throat> the still, um, not the still, but the... Um, that one scene of Natiri by the tree that was used as the first teaser, the very first sort of element. Mm-hmm. And mm. the thing that pushed it over the edge was discovering that to really make the eyes look right, 
you had to capture the moisture that gathers at the edge of the eyelid mm-hmm. and the surface of the eye and actually forms a little bevel. The meniscus. Well, uh, sort of a meniscus, yeah. Um, but when it wasn't there, the eye looked glass. And when it was, it po- it suddenly became real. It became, bam. Yeah. And it's, it's so many things that they discovered doing that. And the, uh, the, the film that before that, that was all motion capture, Beowulf. Uh, but that was that, motion, motion capture. Yeah, that was, they that was like motion dolls, capture. And they, they looked like dolls. And it wasn't, no, it, was, it wasn't even the, close. The, the face camera was definitely, <coughs> um, an innovation that was created mm-hmm. first for Avatar. Yeah. And then, uh, and then right after that, Mars Needs Moms. And I, I think the, the reason Mars Needs Moms just sort of rolled over and died in the box office was, uh, they had no idea how to market it. You know, they were going for the wacky aspect and it was really a touching story about coming of age and the importance of family and, and, uh, all of this core stuff that, that made the movie really wonderful. And they just, they, they, uh, they couldn't understand how to sell the film. And then because that flopped, John, anything with Mars, any, in the anything in the was, word, was yeah. poison. So John Carter of Mars got the word Mars taken out of it. And then suddenly nobody knew what it was. And that flopped. And it goes back to what you were saying, uh, that, uh, fear, fear, yeah, fear. fear runs Hollywood and not, uh, uh, not creativity and not the love of the art, but fear and, uh, you know, and throw in some greed. I'm not just, I'm definitely not saying that there aren't people in Hollywood who are passionate about storytelling and, mm-hmm. and getting their visions on screens and so on. It's just that they have to always have to contend with that particular aspect, usually at the studio level, um, and above, you know, coming down from above. Uh, in fact, we were talking the other day about the virtue of actually selecting an offer from someone who is utterly passionate about your work mm-hmm. um, that would be smaller than one that just came from a straight large studio that was looking at it because it was a sequel to something else. Mm-hmm. Well, saying in Hollywood, everybody wants, everyone wants to be first to be second. Yeah, no one hmm. wants to be first. Everyone yeah, wants no one to wants second. to be the first one out of the gate with a fresh idea because they don't want to take the chance. So it's the uh, the fact that you got Jumper sold and it made it into be made it into onto the silver screen is a, a remarkable achievement. And uh, well, it is. It's you have to um, have written a book, written and published a book to buy a ticket, mm-hmm. but it's still very much a lottery. Um, everything has to line up in ways you have no control over. And, uh, you know, I give a talk at the at Viable Paradise every year. And I just say, okay, what do you want to achieve as a writer? And we go down through the whole list, everything from people, um, you know, well, I want to sell. I want to, I want to be on the New York Times bestseller list. I want to, I want to, you know, do good work. I want to do good art. Um, I want to run into somebody at a con cosplaying as one of my characters. <laughs> um, all uh-huh. the, the all this stuff, it was great stuff, but as I 
I get I pull them out of the students and I write them in these two columns, mm-hmm. and the columns and by the end of the the time I've filled out both columns, they've got the idea and that the point is that everything on the left is something they have absolutely no control over, and everything on the right is stuff they actually can control, and if they really want a successful career, they should concentrate on the stuff they can control and not the stuff they obsess obsessing over stuff they have no control over. Yes, there's two two important rules for being a writer. One, sit in the chair. And two, write. <laughs> and and uh and the rest of it is all, you know, it's it's all consequence of being a, a writer and of being a good writer. And Right, but you can even that you have some uh, you have some stuff. You can mm-hmm. str- you can people who just try and write the same stuff over and over and over. You have people who write the one thing, their one story, and they think it's like a silver bullet. It's going to kill the werewolf. Mm-hmm. But and so they polish it and polish it and polish it. When in fact, um, the thing that kills the werewolf or a duck is really more like a shotgun. So you need to have many stories going out there in all directions, and one of them is eventually going to hit. That's an interesting. That's an interesting bit of wisdom. That's, it's uh, also the same way science fiction predicts the future. Um, like a shotgun yeah. kills the duck. I am, uh, and I have come back to this point uh, uh, on various previous shows. Uh, I'm constantly amazed at exactly how much of that Star Trek has managed to push forward. And how many of the things in Star Trek end up being parts of our daily lives. Uh, in part because Star Trek inspires the engineers who make the stuff. So they hurry out and make whatever they saw in Star Trek real. And then we all get to enjoy the product of that. Uh, I think that uh, uh, science fiction has a role to inspire. And uh, I think... A lot of what you write falls into neatly into that category. Uh, uh, if nothing else, to show uh, to show an aspiring writer how it's done, you know what what you can achieve if you stay focused and uh, and you really want to be a good writer. Uh, well, there's definitely. Um Aspects of that, I think one of the lessons from my career, if someone was going to take a career, is that, and this is probably true of every writer, every successful writer's career, um, and and that is don't write what you think people want. Uh, Write what you want yourself. Um, In my case, teleportation is not a new thing in the field. It's, uh, you know, it's been around since at the very, well, it's in mythology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, interestingly enough, this is weird. There's a, there's a term called the Kwisatz Haderach, right? Yes. And you're going to say it's from? Dune. It's actually Hebrew. Is it? And it refers to this, this rabbi who, among other things, through daunt of faith and, and, um, and this, you know, just the pure power of religion can actually 
go hundreds of miles in a second. Um, well, and right, it's actually then. part of uh, Jewish folklore. Oh my! I did. I had no idea. So anyway, that we go back to say uh, Alfred Vester's "The Star's My Destination" mm-hmm. um, with the jaunting, and and what he did with it, which is you know it became something everybody could do, and maybe that's where I'm heading. <laughs> um, but again, people learn how to do it, right? They don't have to be genetically predisposed. It's become something that people learn how to do. Um, Star Trek, as you said, um, the hoary old tra- tele- transporter beam mm-hmm. has certainly got the teleportation thing going. Uh, there's a lovely book by um, uh, Phyllis Eisenstein called Born to Exile, which is about uh, a minstrel who can teleport in a medieval setting. Hmm. So there's um so but what I wanted to do with it had more to do with um I wanted to be very rigorous about what could and couldn't be done with it. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be um I wanted to use it as a metaphor, um very much a metaphor for escape in the first mm-hmm. book, which turned out to resonate with a lot of people who yes. had unpleasant lives oh, that they yes. wanted to escape oh, yes. with. Um, and so on. So the point is, write what you want to write, write the sort of thing you want to read yourself. Look at the stuff. What's the story you would be reading right now if you could find it? <laughs> I, think that, I think that I think that motivates so many writers. Yeah. You know, I can't I can't find the thing I want to read. I'm going to do this myself. That's kind of why we roll started. Up your sleeves. That's why we started Krypton Radio. Yeah, we couldn't find a science fiction radio station to listen to, so we made one. And then uh, several years later, we found out that no one else had done one. And we actually had a business on our hands. <laughs> so here we are. Um, Excellent. Stephen Gold, I know you have to... Uh, you have to take off pretty quick here. Go jump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have well, to go jump. I actually have to go fall down. Um I have to go take an Aikido, go do an Aikido class and following that in the Aido class. No, no, you'll make the other guy fold it, but... Uh... Well, you do, um, you do. Um, I've been doing this now for 20 years, or I will be, it'll be 20 years in April. Oh, and um, it was my midlife crisis. Uh-huh. But uh, for every time you, you, you stand up, they attack you four times, you throw them, you attack them four times, they throw you. And that's just how it's done. So you better be good at falling down. And now I have a fourth degree black belt in falling down. Wow. Excellent. That's impressive. Stephen Gold, thank you so much for joining us on Krypton Radio on the Event Horizon. The book is EXO. It's from Tor Books. It is on the stands now and available wherever fine books are sold. And thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. You have just heard episode 76 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for November 1st, 2014. We are back after our month-long hiatus, unfortunately due to a significant hardware failure which has now been thankfully fixed. Our guest has been science fiction writer Stephen Gould, author of EXO from Tor Books, the latest novel in the Jumper series. Your hosts have been Krypton Radio's station manager Gene Turnbow and our executive producer Susan Fox. This episode will air again on November 2nd, 2014 at 4 p.m. Pacific, as well as additional times throughout the coming week. 
see the Krypton Radio website at kryptonradio.com for showtimes in your area. Once all the episodes have aired, you will find this episode and others as downloads at the Krypton Radio website and on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by Mark Schurmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by legendary science fiction writer Larry Niven. This program and its contents, except where provided by others, are copyright 2014 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. <laughs>